Uh, I will invite our kids who normally are dismissed at this time to stay in the room with us since it's the last Sunday of the month. We'll all stay and worship together. Uh, let me say a word of thanks not only to the entire uh, praise team, but especially to Jeff. We appreciate uh, you coming back and leading today with uh, Lee out of town. Great job. Thank you guys for leading us. And I'm going to ask the praise team if you guys will be uh, prepared. Uh, we may need you to come back at the end. Y'all will just be on the ready for that, that last song. I feel like we may need to return to that. Uh, it's good to have you be a part of worship today at Freedom, and it's also good to have uh, folks who are joining us online. It's always great to have you be a part of Freedom online. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you now to turn with me to Romans chapter 13. In case you haven't noticed, we're in an election year. And if you haven't noticed, I'd like to congratulate you on waking up from that coma you've been in for the past year. Because uh, you have to have been in a coma or on another planet not to know that we're in an election cycle. It dominates the news pretty much all of the time. And it's a peculiar cycle this time around, isn't it? I don't think we've ever seen one quite like this, at least in our lifetimes. Um, I, I know people always say politics is a dangerous thing to talk about. Well, we're going to go to dangerous territory then today because it's where the word goes. And we're committed to following all of the teachings of Jesus and all of the teachings of the New Testament. And so uh, we're just going to dive right into that. And as I start today, I feel a little bit like last week that it's probably significant that we pause and remind ourselves why we're here in this part of the service. You know, we gather to honor the Lord and to worship Him, and that's the main event. But it's cool that we have an opportunity to grow and receive from Him and to receive truth from His Word. And I just want to remind you that in this part of what we do, it is not the goal in this portion of the service for me to lecture you or to try and persuade you to some position that I've taken on something, but that we would together really learn to be more faithful followers of Jesus. That's really what this is about, that we would not become better Baptists or Methodists or Independents, but that we would truly together discern who Jesus was, what he taught, how he would have us live, and that collectively we would look more and more like that as we move forward. Are we in agreement on that? We need to be in agreement on that before we dive into today, because we'll talk about things today that won't just by nature make us want to go, oh yeah, that's exactly what I've always think, been thinking and, and wanting to do, that there's a part of what we'll talk about today that's going to challenge us to say, am I more than just a good American? Am I more than just a good Republican or a good Democrat? Am I really committed to following Jesus and whatever Jesus would say that I have to do? Here we are in this election cycle where it's so peculiar in many ways. I mean, part of it's weird because it's taken on a reality TV feel to it, in part because one of the two main characters in this particular version is a reality TV star. But part of what's weird about this cycle is that we have the two leading candidates, barring a miracle, one of these two will be our next president, and they are... and. and Listen, don't worry. If you're in love with one candidate or the other, I'm not here to bash your candidate. I, I truly, I don't care who you vote for this fall. I don't know who I'm going to vote for. I'm pretty sure it's not going to be for either of the candidates that have a chance of being elected. So mine's going to be a throwaway vote, I guess. But I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to try and influence you toward anybody because I don't even know where I'm going other than I am sure I'm going to take part in the process. 
But the peculiar thing, this go around, is we have what appear to be, by all, everybody's count, the two most unpopular candidates who are going to be the Democratic and Republican nominees. And I'm not saying that to bash them. <laughs> well, they are. They, uh, not just nationwide, but within their own parties, they are the most un- unpopular pair of candidates, whether that's fair or unfair, they just are, and they're very polarizing figures. And I say that simply to point out that barring some strange miracle, we're going to elect somebody as our next president that most of America isn't going to like from day one. And it's safe to say that a bunch of people in this room aren't going to like from day one. Some will love them and some will hate them. But that's one thing about this go around is you're one or the other. You know, there's no middle ground with the candidates this time around. You either love Hillary or you hate her. You either love Donald or you hate him. There are just aren't a lot of people who are kind of like, oh, I'm kind of ambivalent. I, I could take them or leave them. They, they've been really polarizing figures, which to some extent is not unlike our current situation with President Obama from you know, the last two election cycles. People loved him or hated him, and that's kind of how things have been through his presidency. There's not a lot of people who are just sort of lukewarm about this. How are we, as followers of Jesus, how are we to respond in the face of the current political climate? With all that's going on, I mean, again, as you'll see in the course of the message, I absolutely am not here to bash anybody. But we're family here. We might as well just say things plainly. We have a sitting president that it's probably safe to say that a large majority of people in this room and watching on, and listening online are not big fans of. And for the next four years, we're going to have another president that lots of us probably are not personally going to be big fans of. How are we to react when we're not happy with the Congress, when we're not happy with the chief executive? How are we to respond to all of this? How do we respond when in an election cycle you feel like, I don't see any great candidates that seem to be pillars of the faith, who just seem to be leading out of a, a heart that's committed to the Lord? I mean, in the last election cycle, I didn't feel like I had great choices. I, I just didn't. I mean, I'm, I'm still looking for that man or woman who is just committed that they love Jesus and they love this country and they're gonna, that they're going to govern out of a heart of integrity and, and a commitment to honoring the Lord and His Word. And those kind of candidates get pushed aside pretty quickly, don't they? And so you're left with those that seem to be electable and yet don't seem to represent our values a lot of times. How are we to respond to and to interact with that? Well... It's a good question, particularly at this given time, and it's particularly interesting to consider how Paul responded to these types of issues when you consider the time in which Paul lived. Because if you think that these are uh, perilous times politically, would you like to trade places with Christians in 1st or 2nd or 3rd century Rome? (laughs) I don't think so. Anywhere in the Roman Empire. I don't want to have to live under that kind of oppression. We live in a very sweet situation today compared to any of that. We've all been to history class. We all know just the horrible atrocities that were committed against Christians, particularly during the first three centuries of the church. And so Paul, in what we've been studying for the past couple of months, is writing a letter 
not just to some other city in the Roman Empire. He's writing to the church in the city of Rome, the heart of the empire. And when we get to where we are today in the 13th chapter, Paul feels impressed that he needs to speak specifically to issues of of politics and citizenship. And given the oppression that they're living under, Paul's words are so much more striking. We'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 13. We'll tackle the first 10 verses today. He says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. Don't you know that was a little tough to swallow if you were a resident of Rome and a part of the church living in fear of the emperor? To hear Paul say he is God's servant to do you good. For some people it's not much easier to swallow that passage living in 2016 with our current leadership. A lot of people feel like it's anything but what Paul has just said. But the word says, he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. Boy, there's a happy subject. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. So give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt of love to one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes on to say, love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Wow. That's a mouthful. And that's an eye-opener. It's got to be a... Uh, A splash of cold water in the face for Christians living in Rome in the first century. It's, It's pretty startling for Christians living in America in the 21st century, isn't it? Some of what Paul has to say there. Now I'm going to give you six things to think about, not just today, but as we go forward through this cycle, election year and beyond. And I just, I want you to be open to this. We're not going to solve everything here today, but I want you to at least have to wrestle with what your role is as a believer, as a follower of Christ in our current situation. And the first thing that I want to point out from what Paul is saying is that God has created three institutions which are essential for social order. All of them designed by God. They are the family. That was instituted in Genesis 2. God saw that it wasn't good for man to be alone. He created a suitable helpmate in woman. I mean, God is the one who formed the whole family unit. 
It's a reflection of the fellowship that's shared within the Trinity and how we're supposed to live in community. The family is the first institution. We all need family. The second institution is the church. It's formed in Acts chapter 2. We are in the church age. We live in an era where people are uh, really in large numbers are finding reasons to disassociate themselves from church, don't want anything to do with organized religion, they just want to be followers of Christ, and that is not a Christ-following movement to divorce yourself from the church. God has designed us with a need for Christian family and Christian community. This is a, a fundamental issue for us. We are supposed to belong in community, but there is a third institution that God created, and that is government. It's very clear. I mean, he he opens this whole passage by saying, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The the authorities that exist have been established by God. He goes on to say in verse 2, Whoever rebels against that authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. God created this institution. We need it. We're supposed to take part in it. I mean, think about all the things that you enjoy that you would not have if we didn't have a government that could, at some level, force us at times to do things that we don't want to do, but to force us to work together. There's a lot of stuff that we'd live without. I I kind of lightheartedly alluded to this last week, but in our own neighborhood, which is developing a terrible reputation for being all mad at one another because we're, as a neighborhood, trying to figure out... Can we put in some amenities, build a pool, have a little park area or something? And it really, if I didn't live there, it would just be comical to see what chaos this is. And let me just go ahead and tell you, I won't even name my neighborhood, but the neighborhood that I live in, which is well known in this area because it's a big neighborhood, it'll probably never have a pool for as long as I live. It'll probably never have amenities because there is no government that can make decisions that have to be enforced. We, we have a board, like a lot of neighborhoods do, but they have limited authority, and they can't go out and spend the money, and they can't put in a pool, and they can't do these things without the approval of the neighborhood. It's truly more of a democratic process where you actually have to get 600 and something families to vote on issues. Thank goodness we're not a true democracy in America. We're a republic. If we had to vote on everything, we'd never get anything done because you can't get people to agree. And in a situation where you don't have government, you know what you get? Chaos and no progress. We, they've been trying for years. They can't agree on anything because there's nobody who has the authority to force anything through and get anything done. So what you have is just people hurling insults and getting mad and you know building their case for why we should do this and why we should do that. But apart from government, you don't get anything done. I mean, wasn't it kind of nice today that when you got up, you were able to get in your car and drive down a paved road that didn't jar your teeth out or give you a, a flat tire coming here, and you absolutely wouldn't have had that road if you didn't have a government that was well-funded. Isn't it nice to know that as we gather here today, we know that we're safe from the Pentecostals coming in here and beating our brains out, or you know, whatever, or the Baptists or the Methodists, because we live where there's... An order of law and where there's a police force that assures that you're going to be safe driving to church you're going to be safe while you're in church we're not worried today that mexico is going to invade or that canada is going to invade or 
anybody else for that matter, because we have a standing military that makes us pretty sure that today is not the day that Red Dawn is going to actually happen. We're safe today. There are so many things that we enjoy because we have a government that even at times when we don't want to cooperate, when we don't want to do our part, and we don't want to pay our part, that forces us to work together to get things done. And God said, this is how it needs to be. Otherwise, you wouldn't even have a lot of the basic things that you need. You wouldn't have clean water. You wouldn't have a decent, decent sanitation system and standards that keep you safe. So, for starters, to just realize this is something that's not just like a man-made deal. No, God instituted the order of government. A second thing that, that's worth noting is that the kingdom of God revolves around submission to authority. I say this a lot because this is a... A key principle of life. Everything in the kingdom of God revolves around a chain of command and submission to authority, much like the military does. He opens by saying, everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. That's quite a line right there. Let me say that one again. Those in positions of authority have been what? That's interesting. Placed there by God. Surely they just mean the good guys, right? Paul's talking about Roman emperors who are going to wind up having Christians boiled in oil, dipped in flammable fluids, put up on posts, and set on fire to light the streets at night. Emperors who are going to have Christians sawed in half, who are going to have Christians for sport eaten by wild animals while everybody else watches and cheers. Those in positions of authority have been placed there by God, so anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they will be punished. Maybe Paul's just off his game. Maybe he's just chasing a rabbit that day. No, apparently not. Titus 3 says, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities. They should be obedient and ready to do every good thing. Peter in 1 Peter 2 says, For the sake of the Lord, submit yourselves to every human authority, to the emperor who is the supreme authority, and to governors who have been appointed by him to punish evildoers, and to praise those who do good. Everything in the kingdom is about submission to authority. And you just have to understand this. We have to teach our children this. You cannot be right with God. And fail to submit to the authorities that God puts in place in your life. Now, think first of all about the three institutions that God has created. Family, church, and government. There are positions of authority and submission in all three of those institutions, aren't there? Within the family, there's order. That's part of of what's unsettling about what is being communicated in American culture about family, that we're trying to destroy roles, leadership, and submission. It's like, no, that's all unfair. God created order in the family. The command to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For children to submit to the authority of their parents. We understand that's vital. You can't be right with God. You can't submit to God if you don't submit to the people in your family that God has said to submit to. You can't be right with God if you don't submit to the leadership within your church that God has put you under the covering of. And you can't be right with God if you don't submit to the governing authorities that Paul says God himself has put in place. And he goes on to say, if you rebel against these, you rebel against God. You're rebelling against God's authority. Now here's the really scary thing about that. 
1 Samuel says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. That rebellion is like sorcery. How is rebellion like witchcraft? Very simply. We understand that any time we engage in any form of witchcraft, you go to a, any kind of fortune teller or you start playing around with seances and Ouija boards and channeling and that kind of stuff, you completely open yourself up to, to demonic attachment 100% of the time, and you can bank on it. You will walk away with demonic spiritual attachments from those moments. Witchcraft just is the fast track to demonic influence in your life. It's always going to be bad. But the warning is given in the Old Testament. Rebellion is like witchcraft in that it's always going to open you up to give a legal right for the enemy to come in and have a point of attachment in your, in your life. This is another form of unconfessed sin. Rebellion gives the enemy an opportunity to have a foothold in your life. What Paul is saying here is recognize the stakes are high. This isn't one of those things like, well, it doesn't really matter. You ought to submit to the governing authorities, but it's no big deal if you don't. He's saying, ah, understand this. If you live in rebellion against the governing authorities that God has ordained, you keep yourself every moment of the day open to the influence of the enemy. And that's bad. That is bad news for you and your family. So he says, you better take this really seriously. Now, this begs the question, what does submission look like? Because, boy, that's a, that's a bit of a tricky word, isn't it? Especially when you start talking about submission in the family, submission in the church. What does it mean to submit to the governing authorities? It's really worth having to think about and unpack that. Well, submission certainly doesn't mean that I go along with the things that I agree with and I don't go along with the things that I don't agree with. W- would you agree with that statement? Submission's got to be more than that. I mean, as a parent, when you're raising your kids, if your kids say, I'm going to submit to your authority, Dad, I'm going to submit to you, Mom, but only when I think that the rules that you've given are right. Anybody going to sign up for that? Anybody going to give out you know, cookies and, and rewards and treats for that kind of submission? That's not submission. That's living under the time of the judges, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, Right? Well, we get that in a family it doesn't work to, to live that way. But do you realize how much we apply that kind of mindset to how we think about government? That it's like, yeah, well, I'll, I'll submit to them whenever they pass laws that I agree with. Or I'll pay my taxes when I think they do a better job of spending that money. Oh, is that how it works? That's not submission by any biblical standard. Submission is saying... Yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, and getting in line even when it's not comfortable. Even when we feel about like that 16-year-old who wants to say, well, that's stupid. That's a stupid rule. Why should I have to do that? A lot of us are 40 and 50-year-olds who sound like 16-year-olds when we talk about government. That's just stupid. I think all that's just stupid. I don't think I should have to support a government. And we, we can develop such a negative way of talking and thinking because not everything that the government does is wise. But to submit means that we're team players. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Because government can and will make decisions, laws, rules, which will violate our conscience. Now we've got a problem. Because it's one thing when I look at a decision that's made by a leader and authority over me when I just don't like it. When I think that's irresponsible, that's not, that's not good government, that's, that's not 
You know, just that, that's not a good way to spend money. It's one thing to just not like what they're doing. It's another thing when it truly violates my conscience. And I, I have to say, that totally goes against my faith. And I cannot live in line with that. Because to yield to what they're telling me to do here, I will have to violate a fundamental tenet of my faith. Now, do you realize that those are two different things? And we don't need to mistake one for the other. When I just don't like what you say versus you're telling me that I have to do something that truly violates my faith. Or you're telling me I can't do something that's a key part of living out my faith. I want us to be really clear about this. There are going to be times when you have to submit to authority even in a way that doesn't allow you to do what they're telling you to do. That sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? I'll give you an easy example. You can submit to authority when you work for the government. Maybe you're a public school teacher. Maybe you you hold some public office. And the law, or at least the current interpretation of it, says, but you can't express your faith without somebody else initiating that. You can't tell other people about your faith because you work for the government or you're in a school classroom, yada, yada. You know the whole routine of what we live under today. And that, that's a violation of the law, and you're, you're not allowed to do that. That becomes, for many of us, an issue of conscience, not of preference. Would you agree? We're followers of Christ. We are commanded to represent Christ everywhere we go all the time. And yet the authorities tell us you can't do that. You can't talk about Jesus in this place because ultimately somehow you work for Uncle Sam. You can't do that. What are you going to do in those situations? I'm supposed to submit to authority, but that violates my conscience. Here's what you do. When the governing authority at any level violates an issue of faith and conscience, you must live by your faith and conscience and submit to whatever that means it's going to cost you in terms of punishment that's handed down. That's how you submit and live in line with your faith and conscience. For instance, there are a lot of people who feel so strongly about the abortion issue that they'll march and protest at abortion clinics in an attempt to save lives, in an attempt to save the unborn. And there have been countless unborn children, it's been well documented, whose lives have been spared because people marched and protested and that created enough of a pause for people to have to stop and rethink this and, you know, who didn't have an abortion and They will do this at times in violation of the law. And they'll have to go to jail for that. Now, is that rebellion against authority or is it submission? If you peacefully protest as an issue of conscience, and in so doing, you're willing to accept whatever punishment is handed down for that. That is actually both. You are submitting to authority while expressing your conscience. Are you with me? It's no different than when Peter and John were called to account repeatedly. They were beaten for speaking of Jesus. And the civil authorities said, you are never to speak in the name of Jesus again. Now, they were respectful. They were submitted to the authorities. But they had to say back, you're going to have to decide for yourselves which is right for us to obey God or to obey you. Because right now, those two things are at cross purposes. But as for us, we cannot help but speak of God and what he's done for us in the person of Christ. 
Well, that should speak for us, shouldn't it? When anybody tells you, you can't talk about Jesus in this situation, you're not allowed to. Guess what? You're not allowed to stop me. No one can stop you from that. It's who we are. We're his representatives. We are his mouthpiece. Nobody gets to tell us that we can't talk about Jesus. Now, the hard part about submitting to authority is you have to always represent Christ. But in so doing, you have to be willing to take the consequences. And this is the thing that we hate. In mass, American Christians have almost universally said, well, we're not allowed to talk about Jesus because we're in the school system or we're in government or we're in some position where some authorities told us that we can't do that. So it wouldn't be right for us to do that. Wrong. That's a wrong conclusion. You should live out your faith in a matter of conscience and be willing to take the consequences. It's what Christians historically have done. Peter writes, if you're going to suffer, just make sure that you're suffering for doing what's right. Make sure that you suffer for a good cause. So submission to authority doesn't mean that we blindly yield to whatever we're told to do. It means that we always yield except for when it's going to violate our conscience. Are we together on that? It's a significant point. The third thing we'll say from what Paul has has pointed out here is that faithful Christians should be the best citizens of any nation. The message translation says, be a good citizen. All governments are under God, so live responsibly as a citizen. Do you want to be on good terms with the government? Be a responsible citizen, and you'll get on just fine. The government working to your advantage. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Be a good citizen. Be a good citizen. Be a good citizen. Regardless of what country you live in, and we all happen to live in the States, you ought to be a great citizen of whatever country you live in. I think we live in the greatest country on earth. But isn't it funny, if you just listen to people talk today, how down we are on our own country. Do you get that vibe? This is the audience participation time. Do you you get the vibe that that I'm talking about where people are just, ah, just so down? It's like everybody just feels so bad. And I think some of it is because we've made such a a sport out of the politics where everybody's throwing mud at each other. And it feels like it's all yuck and everything. I tell you what we all need. We all need to travel outside the country. need to visit some other countries. I love to travel. I've been to a lot of other countries. I've been to about 20 other countries. And let me tell you, every time I travel outside this country, I enjoy it. But I am thrilled to be able to say, I am an American. I love coming home to America. We do live in the greatest country on earth. Could we get over ourselves a little bit? We need to study history. We need to visit the world and realize we are so blessed. And as such, we ought to be citizens who take part in the process. I'm not happy about what the election is going to look like this fall. I'm going to wake up on the first Wednesday of this November, and I probably won't be thrilled about who our next president's going to be. But you know what? I'm going to be thrilled to be an American. I'm going to be convinced that God is still on the throne and that he still installs those in positions of authority that he wants in authority, that ultimately he's in charge. I can rest in that, and I can submit to the authorities that God puts in place. And we just roll on and give thanks to live where we live. I don't know who I'm going to vote for, but I do know this. I will take part in the process 
Why? Because every Christian ought to be counted as the best citizens of the country in which they live. That means we'll take part in the process. It means that we will do our part, that we will serve when we are called on, that we'll do our part to pay our taxes and to abide by the laws, not just when somebody's looking, but to truly abide by the laws. You tell me how we can submit to the governing authorities when we're cheating every time somebody isn't looking. Come on. You're right, Dave. You can't. This thing of, of abiding by the laws only when we think we're going to get caught will not cut it. That is not what followers of Jesus do. Are we submitted, submitted to God at the level that we will submit to the authorities and the laws that they put in place? Christians should be the easiest people on earth to govern because we're good citizens. Are you with me? I knew this was going to go down a little hard. The fourth thing we'll say, and it's fixing to get harder. Civic leaders, boy, Paul didn't, he does not flinch on this. Civic leaders deserve our respect and constant prayers. He says in verses 6 and 7, the authorities are working for God when they fulfill their duties. Show respect and honor for them. For them who? All show respect and honor for them all. First Peter two seventeen. Fear God and respect the king. There is no easy way to say this, so we just better suck it up and take the punch. All the trash talking that Christians do about our leaders in government office needs to stop now. There's no place for it. It's not right for a follower of Jesus. I'm not fond of a lot of the people in, in Montgomery or Washington, just at a personal level. I'm not. But the Word of God calls me to a higher standard than my personal opinion. The Word of God calls me to recognize that they hold an office that is, in a way, holy. It's an office that God has designed, and it is God designed that they would fill that office in at that particular time. It doesn't mean that they're godly. It doesn't mean that they're making good decisions. God is so big and so sovereign that in history, he's taken pagan kings and accomplished his will. Go back and read the Old Testament. It's like riding a roller coaster to read the history of Israel. Good godly king... Godly leadership, the blessing of God, the hearts of the people begin to turn. God winds up giving them an ungodly king. Oh, and they just bottom out and, and just life goes to... It's just an up and down cycle. But God was great at giving his people what they needed. To get them on their knees and on their faces and to restore them to where they need to be. But God could work with good kings and with bad kings. I mean, it's amazing, not just the kings of Israel, but pagan kings around them that God would use to accomplish his will. So, you know, we may look and say, well, I'm afraid of this about this candidate and these things about this candidate. And Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? I can tell you what we're going to do. We're going to love Jesus. We're going to fear God and honor the king. We're going to fear God and honor the president. We're going to fear God and honor the Congress. And we're going to press on, trusting God, knowing we serve a God who is bigger than the U.S. government. We serve a God who's in control. And by the way, he's not God of America. He's God of the whole universe. 
He loves more than America. He has a plan for America. But we can rest in his plan and be respectful of the people that he uses. Yeah, I knew that wasn't going to get a lot of amens right there. Obama is not, President Obama is not a popular guy in the Bible Belt. We all know that. He is probably not going to win any popularity contests in this room. I get that. I'm not going to vote for him for class favorite. But I am going to honor him as my president. I don't have to like him to honor him. I'm going to do more than honor him. I pray for him. I don't have to like the man to honor the office and show respect to the man who fills the office that God has installed in that place. And we all owe him that. And we all will owe the next president that. Whether it's a him or a her. We owe respect to the office. And to give less than that is to diminish what it means to be a follower of Christ. Friends, we can't pick and choose the issues where we're going to follow the teachings of Jesus. Do you agree? The teachings of Jesus are clear on this. Paul goes a bit further in what he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2. He says, pray for rulers and all those who have authority so that we can have quiet and peaceful lives full of worship and respect for God. This is good and it pleases God our Savior. I had some teaching early on in my adult Christian experience that was helpful just about, you know, kind of how to get my head around praying for those in authority. I'll just throw this out as a thought. My prayer calendar is always set up around a five-day calendar. I do, I do Monday through Friday with kind of a structured set of things that I pray for. There are some people in situations I pray for daily. That's a short list. And others that I pray for once a week or, or twice a week that's, that's laid out there. But in terms of, of praying for those in government authority, a simple structure that I found works for me is to take one day a week to pray for our president, for his cabinet, and for the vice president. Basically praying for the executive branch, those who are real decision makers at the heart of the government. To have another day to spend some time praying for the Congress. Our Congress needs prayer. We're just at, at such an unhealthy place there. We need for a different type of, men, of group of men and women to, to come in and a different spirit to rule the day in Congress. We need to be praying for the Congress. Uh, on a third day, to pray for the Supreme Court. For that group of nine who have such incredible influence in interpreting the law. A fourth day, to pray for our state leaders, for our governor and state legislature specifically. And the fifth day, to pray for our local leaders. Specifically for our mayor, our city council, and our county commissioners. Now, that doesn't necessarily cover everybody, but that's, that's a pretty good uh, covering there. And, oh, for what it's worth, somewhere in there, would you pray for the men and women in uniform who, who fight for us? We, I just believe we owe that to them. Uh, to pray for those in authority and to pray for those who serve us by, by protecting the liberty that we enjoy. Well, he said to, to pray for them so that we would um, live peaceful lives full of worship and respect as I pray for our leaders I pray that they would be men and women of integrity who honor the Lord and who make decisions that would lead us to be a nation that is characterized by God and his peace and tranquility that's what the NIV I believe translates that passage to say Tertullian 
is one of the earliest apologists of the Christian church. He lived in the second century. He uh, was born around 155 and died in about 220. So think in terms of history. He is so early on. He's in the first two centuries of the life of the church. These are people who generationally, generationally are so closely connected to Jesus and the apostles. It's the kind of deal where, like, you know, your great-grandparents can tell you stories of, of what they knew firsthand, potentially. I mean, they're that closely tied to the beginning of the whole movement. Tertullian lived in a time when Rome was cracking down horribly on Christians. And as one of the first, really the first apologist to ever write about the faith in Latin, he said this, without ceasing, for all, all of our emperors, interesting that he would be that specific. The emperors had been so cruel toward Christianity. For all of our emperors, we offer prayer. We pray for life prolonged. He's praying that for the emperors. We pray for life prolonged, for security for the empire, for protection for the imperial house, for brave armies a faithful senate, a virtuous people, the world at rest. It's a pretty awesome model prayer, isn't it? It's a model for us and how we ought to be praying for those in authority over us. A fifth thing to think about, it's very straightforward, that a major part of Christian citizenship is faithfully paying our taxes. He says in verses 6 and 7, Pay your taxes too for these same reasons. For government workers need to be paid. They're serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them. I'm grateful for a lot of things that I inherited just by having the parents that I have. They they aren't perfect, but they have modeled a lot of things that are really healthy. And I appreciate about my dad that he has, has really taught me some balance in life. Now, I've... I don't think I've ever known anyone, met anyone, who gets excited about paying taxes. If you're in this room and you do, please introduce yourself to me after the service. I don't think I've ever known anybody who gets excited about paying taxes. But my dad is interesting in that I remember many years ago, my jaw kind of dropping to hear him say that he doesn't feel any frustration at having to pay his taxes. That he's not frustrated at the tax rate that he pays that he doesn't, you know, lobby or wish for that to be cut. And I just remember him saying, we have a responsibility to do our part. And paying our taxes is a part of doing our part. We enjoy the benefits of that. Now, my dad's not a naive guy. He's a really bright guy. He understands what you and I know. Certainly. We could all make a long list of all the things that, this is government waste, we shouldn't be spending money on that. I I get that. It doesn't mean that every dollar is spent well, but the bottom line is, if we don't pay our taxes, we don't get to enjoy the things that we enjoy. And I really appreciate my dad instilling that in me, that in some ways, it's a lot like tithing and giving to your church. It's stuff that you don't get to hold on to. But it's okay, because your willingness to let it go becomes a blessing to lots of people. And we all need to do our part. Paul's driving home that same idea when he says, pay your taxes. No matter what the rate is, pay them in full. All right, now I'm going to really crawl up in your lap on this one. The fact that you can do transactions in cash 
for which there is no record and that you could never be prosecuted for cheating on your taxes, the fact that you did it so neatly and can't be caught doesn't come close to making it okay. You with me? If you do business on a cash basis so that you can hide the tax repercussions, so that you can hide your your true tax liability by doing that, let's call it what it is. It's a three-letter word. It's sin. It's wrong for us to fail to pay what we owe. This is a part of submitting to the governing authorities. I don't get excited about paying my taxes, but I do appreciate this, that we all have a responsibility and we all should share in this. Doesn't mean I'm signing up to pay more than, than what is due. If we each do our part, we'll all benefit from that. It's interesting, again, to look back to the first century or two of the life of the church. Justin Martyr is one of the best known and most respected of the church fathers. And he lived during the first hundred years of the life of the church. I mean, the people in Justin Martyr's day, they're able to talk firsthand about, yeah, you know, the people that we know who knew the apostles. People who had a direct line of of connection with Jesus. They didn't only have what is written in the scriptures. They had first-hand accounts of what Jesus said beyond what got written down. They are so in touch with what the, the church is supposed to look like and how faith is supposed to be expressed. And here's what Justin Martyr wrote. He says, Everywhere we more readily than all men endeavor to pay to those appointed by you the taxes, both ordinary and extraordinary, as we have been taught by Jesus. We worship only God, but in other things we will gladly serve you, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men, and praying that with your kingly power you may be found to possess sound judgment. That ought to serve as a pretty good standard for what Christianity looks like today as it's expressed in terms of how we interact with the government. What's the heart of what he's just said? He said, we pay all of our taxes, large and small, and as Christians, we lead the way. Why do we do this? He said, it's what Jesus taught. We get that, and we're just committed to whatever Jesus said. And that brings us to the final thing. The key to greatness for any nation is for its people to love God and to love each other. He sort of shifts gears in verses 8 through 10 when he says, Don't run up debts except the huge debt of love that you owe each other. When you love others, you will complete what the law has been after all along. Love other people as well as you do yourself. You can't go wrong when you love others. When you add up everything in the law code, the sum total is love. You know, we don't typically think through what government is about to, to bring it down to an idea that's this simple, but it really is. I mean, think about the fundamentals of, you know, we're a people who live under rule of law. We don't live under the rule of a tyrant. We live under rule of law in American society. But think about what the heart of the law is about. It's ultimately after justice and fairness, making sure that people are cared for and treated well. I mean, I know we could nitpick some peculiar laws out there, but think about the heart of the law code. I mean, why do we have to pay Social Security? You know, why is there 
a welfare system. I mean, at the heart of the things that have been instituted by law is a concern for the poor, making sure that the elderly are going to be provided for, making sure that people who can't afford it are going to have housing, making sure that people are not being taken advantage of, that we are respectful of each other. Paul said, you know, when you really get to the heart of the matter, when you live by the law, you're ultimately expressing the bottom line in it all, that it's all about love. It's about learning to love well. That you're going to be obeying the law when you truly love God and love people. Now, we all know that in the current election cycle, the mantra for for one of the candidates is making America great again. We're all in support of that. We want to make America great again. I would suggest to you, we can't pick any candidate, and I don't just mean out of the current field, we can't pick a candidate who's going to make America great again. Would you agree with that? Elect who you want to to the White House. One person is not going to make America great again. How's America going to be great again? Well, for starters, she's still pretty great. I, hey, if, if I could just affect a few things here today, one of them would be to say, could we change our attitude and just give thanks that we do live in the greatest nation on earth? Can we all be ambassadors with grateful hearts that say, thank you, God, for where I live, and that express that with just a heart and an attitude around people that says, hey, I'm, I'm glad to be an American. I'm glad to live where I do. I'm glad to represent this country wherever I go. But America can be greater. And she won't be greater because we elected a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent or a Libertarian or whatever. The greatness of America it always comes back to the American people. And when we learn to be a people who love God wholeheartedly and who express that love by loving other people well, we will begin to be a great, great nation again. And in doing that, we'll live with conviction. We'll vote with conviction. We'll be a different kind of country, but always remember the greatness of America is not defined in Washington and it's not defined in Montgomery. It is defined where you live. It's ordinary people like you and me living out our faith, which is summed up in two commandments, that you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you love your neighbor as you love yourself. I'll tell you what's killing us in American politics self-centeredness and greed it is it absolutely is I mean think about what's killing Congress and their ability to get anything done everybody is living to get reelected and the way that you get reelected is you make sure maximum funds from the national budget are spent on the area that you represent right so I'm going to make sure I get the biggest piece of pie that I possibly can spent in my district, regardless of how that serves the needs of the whole nation. It's about greed and self-interest. And when we as a people learn to no longer be selfish, greedy, self-centered people, and to say, you know what, within the kingdom and within this country, I live for the greater good. I live to serve others and to make a difference in the lives of others. That means I'm going to have to have hands that are willing to let go of something. Let go of control. Let go of having to have everything for myself. Listen, this is not a Bernie supporter talking. I'm not talking about Christian socialism. I hate socialism. Jesus didn't teach socialism, but he did teach generosity and compassion for others. Those don't look much alike.
socialism, and generosity. Paul says the heart of the law is the love and concern for other people. America needs desperately to see Christians take the lead in, in being a positive voice in this process. There's a lot that we could be bleak and gloomy and discouraged about, but there's a lot we can be grateful for. And ultimately, we can rejoice in knowing this. Whoever we elect in November and four years and eight years and twelve years from now, we ultimately serve the one true king to whom every king must bow and every president must yield and acknowledge ultimately that he is Lord. And we serve him. And so whatever else rises and falls, whatever the stock market does, we're in a good place because we belong to him. Would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer? Father, we give you thanks that you reign, that you are on your throne, and that we can be secure through the day, we can rest at peace at night knowing that ultimately you are our king. We thank you that we live where we live. We thank you that you put people in positions of authority around us and that we are protected through their leadership. Ultimately, God, we rest secure in your leadership and your authority in our lives. God, we confess to you that there are so many times and ways when we have failed to reflect the values that your word has taught us about being respectful of those in authority and being supportive of of the position that they hold. God, we don't want to make excuses for that. We ask you to forgive us and to teach us how to be respectful and how to be supportive of those in authority. Would you help us to be the very best Americans that we can be? And would you help us to live out our faith wherever we work and wherever we live? And we pray for our nation today, O oh God. We pray that we would once again be the nation that is a beacon to the rest of the world. That this would be truly a Christian nation. That we would continue to be the mission-sending country of the world. Lord, we pray for those in office. We pray for President Obama. We pray for Vice President Biden. We pray for the cabinet. For all the members of the Congress. And particularly for those on the Supreme Court. God, we pray for our leaders in Montgomery, for Governor Bentley, for our state legislature, and those who lead us here at the local level. Please, O oh God, move in their lives. Would you be very real to every single one of them? For those who don't know you, God, we pray that you would move in a way that they would come to know and trust in you. That they would become followers of you, the true and living God. God, would you help these men and women to lead with hearts of integrity, to truly work toward justice and a common good. Help them to lead out of conviction. Protect them from evil. Lord, would you protect our country from evil? We thank you for all that we enjoy. We realize the blessings that we enjoy are gifts from your hand. We give you thanks for that today, and we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.